I think being that in the grand scheme of time, environmental justice and a lot of the goals that are subsumed under climate justice mm -hmm. are going to take years and years to overhaul. I think what success looks like right now is meaningfully involving the appropriate communities to properly interrogate mm -hmm. everything that all the teams are doing. What is the legal team doing? What is the finance team doing? What is the marketing team doing? What is the right. product and design team doing? Um, so yeah, I think organizations that are carving out a lot of space and investment to bring in the proper people to interrogate how they're doing things to help guide how they overhaul is what success looks like right now. friends welcome back to the podcast i can't believe it's already season two i feel like time has flown so much since starting in season one i've actually moved back up to new york a little bit of a life update kicking off season two i'm featuring deandra marizette deandra is a published environmental writer poet and speaker whose work recognizes culture as an expression of our relationship to land and advocates for the accessibility of diverse stories available to rising generations. She's also the executive director of Intersectional Environmentalist, or IE, which she co-founded with Green Girl Leah or Leah Thomas and Sav's Cats. This episode is juicy. It features a discussion around the difference between climate and environmental justice, environmental justice around the world, and we also get into the rise of eco-influencers. I'm really excited to be sharing this episode with you. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank Deandra for her time, wise words, and beautiful storytelling. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And yeah, have a great day. So a little bit about me, um, including all the juicy things. I am Latina. Number mm -hmm. one. I'm <laughs> a Texan. I am a cultural writer, researcher, and poet. And my work, all the work that I do, um, even though I do a lot of different things, really thrives at the intersection of environmentalism and culture. That's my jam. Mm -hmm. And... In my own journey, I've really come to recognize culture around the world as a really deeply rooted expression of people's relationship to land. And so, yeah, I really just embrace that as my guiding star in all of the work that I do. And I hope that the work I do really addresses a lack of inclusion and erasure of diverse stories and education that is going to be available to rising generations in the environmental movement and beyond. Mm -hmm. So speaking about your like multi-hyphenate Latina self, um, yes. you obviously I have read some of your pieces and you're very vocal about using poetry in your work. Um, I'm just kind of curious how you got involved in the poetry space. Are there any like Latino, Latina influences that you've had that really sort of speak to you and your experience? Yeah, I think... I had a lot of influences. I think over the past few years, 
working at the organization I helped co-found has really opened my eyes and my heart to not only fiction reading, mm-hmm. which I struggled with in the past, but also just very imaginative and reflective poetry and eco poetry is something that has definitely taken hold of me in a really powerful way over the past few years. And I think a lot of that has to do with just so many people in the space that are leaning on that as Mm -hmm. like a coping mechanism in a way, but also a really beautiful way to imagine the future. So I've been writing eco poetry, but more so from a youthful lens. And I think that in terms of influence, it's so funny. I know that this seems like very left field, but I think it was largely influenced by the movie Coco. Okay. Yes. Okay. Let me take you there. Say more. Yes. Say more things. So my community and my work at IE and discovering the power of radical imagination and all these things really took me down the poetry route and the eco poetry route. But I started focusing more so on youthful poetry. So things that I could imagine could be turned into a children's book or a play or Mm. um, something that was like a shared dialogue between like recited by an elder and a young person. Mm. Because the movie Coco, which is also, you know, artistic expression, it's a beautiful animated film. It really showed me the power of projects like that and art being used as an intergenerational healing tool. Mm. So in Texas, for example, I saw my family many, many elders in my very, very Mexican family be introduced or reintroduced to what Dia de los Muertos even is. Mm. Because so many people in my family have really lost connection with that tradition. So my nephews and my niece, they're going to grow up knowing what that is because of the movie Coco, but because of things like assimilation and erasure and just generational racial trauma so many of our elders were like reintroduced that was like reinvigorated in a way and so that the release of that movie and then the influence of my community at work let me know that okay wow i do actually really love reading and writing poetry i love it from an environmental point of view and Mm. i want the result of it to always be an intergenerational healing tool like the movie coco was for my family Mm, that's really beautiful yeah i feel like there's there's so much richness in terms of Latin culture and so many other cultures, but this idea of connection to the land, like now we have the language around certain terms that people use um, in order to describe what we've been feeling for many generations. But even um, I'm not Cuban, but I'm Cuban by association because my step grandfather is Cuban. And when I speak about environmentalism, um, you know, there was just this intrinsic value that they always had to like the variety in fruits and coffee and culture. And it now we have all of these like almost academic terms, but really it's more of a feeling and a spirituality that comes with it. So I think that's really, really cool. And that makes me really like really happy that um, you've been able to experience that because it really is such a beautiful feeling. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. And I feel... I feel like now is the time that we're so, as again, like multiple, like spanning multiple generations, I think we are really ready for stories and tools and Mm -hmm. art that, that really does spark that bridge. So yeah, it's an exciting time for sure to be in the environmental movement or to be an artist or to be 
um, somebody who's doing cultural research or if you're like me, somebody who's at the intersection of all those things. Yeah. So touching upon that a little bit, I definitely wanted to talk a bit about intersectional environmentalists, i.e. Can you explain the genesis of the organization, how you got involved and then met the co-founders, the Atomis and Sabs Cats, um, and what that experience was like? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, So just a little bit about IE. Um, For those who don't know, Intersectional Environmentalist, or IE, is a Black-founded and entirely woman of color, led environmental justice education and awareness organization. We were founded in 2020, and just in a a few short years, we've become a leading resource for Mm. content and programs that really explore help people explore the intersections of environmentalism, culture, and identity. And we were born out of the uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And we were really, we catalyzed to help shift the narrative of the environmental movement from being one that was previously pretty exclusive to a white-led or Mm white-informed narrative, which erased a lot of important history and a lot of diverse communities. And our goal was to hopefully help the environmental movement become one that could learn to center voices through new frameworks and share expertise and experiences of those who are most impacted by various issues within the climate movement. So like, how can we shift the narrative to be one that really nurtures bringing those most impacted to the forefront of the conversation and also letting those people inform the solutions? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's what we've been up to. And yeah, I think that we all came together um, in 2020 at, you know, during various protests and things like that, we, we all were friends prior um, for like brief histories and our brief lengths of time. And then Leah, our founder, released a definition of intersectional environmentalism. And when that started to gain a lot of attention and a lot of virality, we just came together and decided like, hey, this this language is so powerful. Shout out mm. to Leah. And like resonates with a lot of people. Yes, yes. So shout out to Leah and Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who founded the term intersectionality um, and that framework under Mm -hmm. the legal context, actually. And then shout out to Leah for applying it to environmentalism. Mm -hmm. Um, That language was just so powerful. It resonated so hard. Mm -hmm. And so we just decided we needed to do something with that moment and really nurture it and turn it into some type of movement that could just help shift the way anybody engages with environmentalism. Yeah, definitely. And I think what was really interesting to me when I was um, sort of understanding IE is that there is a consulting arm to the organization, which I know that you are very involved in. Can you just explain what that looks like on the ground and what your day to day sort of looks like? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So something we've learned is that really the the birth of any harmful or healing system or belief always starts with a story. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to help us launch a consulting arm that could help mostly industry leaders and like corporate teams course correct the story that we have or that they mm. have. So we, I mean, we, we were all given stories about people and the planet growing up. And it just seemed like a really important time to level set the story that we should all be kind of jumping off from to address the yeah. climate crisis. So so our team started providing trainings and workshops that 
help leaders and teams explore the history of environmental justice in America, which like that's such important cultural context for entering this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, what intersectional environmentalism is in the context of issues that a lot of us are already really passionate about. So like maybe in the past, your you personally or your team really cares about energy or really cares about clean air or really cares about tree access. So kind of taking issues that already feel near and dear to our hearts as environmentalists, but now how do you apply an IE lens to those issues so that we can really get to root causes, community-led solutions and community-informed mm. results um, and equitable, equitable outcomes too. Um, and also just understanding, you know, what tools and internal engagement can look like to promote culture change within an organization. I mean, I think in 2020, especially, we saw so many mm. teams scrambling, not only from an external facing standpoint, right, like press, marketing, communication, what are we saying? What's our rhetoric? What are we commenting on? Which was such a wild thing to like witness as just a consumer, yeah. but also internally, right? Like, how many organizations were struggling to take care of their employees, to show their employees mm. that they were about the change and, and trying to figure out what needed to be different on the inside of their own orgs. Um, so yeah, it was, it's been a real pleasure trying to work with um, or working with different brands and leaders to educate people, show people what these tools look like in practice, and then help them engage with their employees and their consumers again in a way that felt more meaningful and apt to the time that we're in. Yeah. I have so many questions about that, but I think something that's sort of sticking out to me right now is in terms of success stories, right? Like there is definitely, I feel like this push pull between that public facing aspect, as you were saying, right? Like making sure that people cross off their, their P's and Q's and are doing the right thing so that they actually don't get sued or have reputational backlash. And then the ones that are actually um, looking to make these changes a bit more legitimately. Have you felt in your work that there are organizations that do this successfully when they're looking at it from the lens of, we want to almost overhaul everything we're doing and integrating this within like a whole approach? Like, do you feel like there have been more success, success stories if they approach it in that way? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, if they approach it from like an overhaul perspective. Yeah, like not just in a siloed way. Yeah, yeah. So I think that you're absolutely right. The brands that are doing it in this, when you say siloed, I think of brands that are only carving out space or empowering their press and marketing teams only mm -hmm. to address this, or they're only... They're only letting their CSR team or their DE, their new DEI team, new DEI team yeah. right? Because so many of them didn't even have them before or like DEI director. So mm -hmm. I think when you silo the work to, in that way, um, it's really hard to, to, one, change the culture of your organization. Definitely. And then, and then allow that culture to manifest into positive results around equity and environmental justice, et cetera. So... I think being that in the grand scheme of time, environmental justice and a lot of the goals that are subsumed under climate justice mm -hmm. are going to take years and years to overhaul. I think what success looks like right now is meaningfully involving the appropriate communities to properly interrogate mm -hmm. everything that all the teams are doing. What is the legal team doing? What is the finance team doing? 
What is the marketing team doing? What is the right. product and design team doing? Um, so yeah, I think organizations that are carving out a lot of space and investment to bring in the proper people to interrogate how they're doing things to help guide how they overhaul is what success looks like right now. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to circle back to what you just said in terms of climate justice. So for my listeners, like how would you define climate justice and do you differentiate between climate justice and environmental justice and how can we differentiate between the two? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. So environmental justice is actually a pillar of climate justice. So right. climate justice, when we say climate justice, what we mean is an equitable division of responsibility to address the needs and just the, some of the burdens of the many burdens of the climate crisis. So this looks like unpacking who has caused the most harm in issue XYZ mm -hmm. com and comparing that with, but who's bearing the brunt of that burden? Definitely. How do we re how do we reallocate the responsibility of that burden to folks who have caused the issue and have the resources to address that issue? Um, so some some of the climate justice issue or areas or pillars, if you will, would include things like a just transition or racial and environmental justice, uh, indigenous climate action, community resilience, climate education and engagement as well. Mm -hmm. And the list goes on and on. Whereas environmental justice is ideally what would have successfully spread sooner than climate justice was even a term. <laughs> right. So, environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of everybody, all people, regardless of race, color, national origin and income with when it comes to the development, implementation and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations and policies, mm -hmm. um, which a lot of people I think, and it's okay that we do this. We, when we say environmental justice, I think a lot of people don't necessarily think laws, regulations and policies, but right. a lot of the, the wider work that we quote unquote call environmental justice, right? Like the way that we are showing up to feed people, to spread art, to spread education. I wanna affirm that that is a part of environmental justice work. And the result of that, the result of our work in doing this should be that people feel more empowered and welcome um, and are able to access being involved in things like legal, regulatory, and policy work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think to that end, like we've definitely seen examples of environmental justice in other countries, right? So right now, to my listeners, I always preface and say this is a very American lens. But I was just very curious as well, because the organization has grown so much. Um, have you had any experiences outside of the U.S.? Um, or things you've sort of learned from that have informed the work you're doing here? Um, and is there any like cross-cultural exchanges happening within IE that's been really profound for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. So IE has engaged globally, which has been so like, oh my gosh, like I would have never thought. Mm -hmm. um, We've been very lucky to do both virtual and speaking engagements in New Zealand, so cool. in London, in Scotland, yeah, um, like so so many places. Um, and I think that we figured, we determined early on 
that we are a very American team, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that it was really important to us from the beginning that even though we're engaging globally, because this is a global effort, the climate crisis is a global effort. It is global inherently, (laughs) totally. (laughs) That's right. We determined that it was super important that we come to the table as Americans and we don't serve as the voice for anybody else, but rather Mm -hmm. use our platform to amplify the voices of other people. So the way that we'll usually engage is, let's say a university hires us for a speaking engagement and they're like, hey, like our team um, or a university or like a corporate team. And they're like, hey, we are we are learning about the American perspective on these things. Okay, Mm. we show up and we might share about that. Or if a collaboration opportunity comes, we're really letting the people that we're working with inform what it is that we're helping them bring to life. Maybe we're supporting from a design perspective. Maybe we're supporting from a, you know, comms perspective, but they're ultimately it's their, their rhetoric and their lived experience that we're amplifying. So yeah, I would say that that's kind of been how we navigate that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful just because I think even looking at it from like a more LATAM experience, I think there's really interesting work going on between like mining rights and indigenous rights um, and like energy development within Central America. And so even there, like that context, which is embedded with a lot of really heavy political um, unrest, which can be Mm -hmm. so complicated and so specific to each country, like environmental injustice definitely extends beyond the American lens. So it, it is very interesting to watch the way that other leaders, for example, like in Guatemala, are taking and like using those tools to be able to use it inside their country. Um, and like, even just looking at it from that perspective has been really interesting for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I think that it's, it's interesting to unpack that even from a personal, uh, cultural lens. So like being part of a Mexican community, for example, having full awareness that as a Mexican American, your lived experience the capacity that you have, the safety that you can or can't experience in the U.S. Mm-hmm. is it in terms of like your work in advocate in advocacy looks so different than somebody who's like on the ground in Mexico or on the ground in different parts of Latin America. Like the the ways that we engage this work is very different across borders yeah. within different governments and things like that. So yeah, it's super important that when we're working with people or even like me personally, when I'm personally working with people that come from different contexts that I'm like hyper aware of that. There was a question that I had that's a little bit more spicy, if you will. Um, I've been very interested just in terms of like this age of social media and influencers, what your take is on what's being termed like eco-influencers and the Mm. way that certain people might get a brand deal or something like that. Like, what's your take on the way that I think certain people will use advocates in the space as like the poster child of environmentalism or something like that? What's like, how do you deal with that sort of tension? Yeah, no, that is a tension, no doubt. I have I have a few hot takes on this. So please (laughs) give them to us. So yes, hot takes. So on activists 
and just like the all of a suddenness of people mm-hmm. being quote unquote activists. I think it's great that people want to learn more about activism and that today we more generously and broadly refer to people doing work in the climate and environmental justice spaces and movements. We refer to them more loosely today as activists. Like mm-hmm. I, I get called an activist, which is fine, but because I don't want to be like gatekeepy of the work. And I, I, I do believe that in small ways that there are like daily acts of liberation and resistance. And there's something to be said for people in the space. But my hot take is that that's fine as long as we remember that on the ground activists in their truest form are those on the front lines risking their lives to protect Mm. monarch butterfly reserves from loggers who will kill you from fossil fuel industry and police projects like cop city that will imprison you that will kill peaceful protesters yeah so i think just just remembering the difference between you know hey like the notion of activism and the activist space has grown and that is a really positive thing um but there's a difference between like the general growth of activism and like frontline activists. That would be one hot take I have. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, that's definitely valid and interesting. Like I do think it's so easy to put your little byline in your Instagram and say, and, and, and I think that's part of the movement, like part of why this work is so engaging is because we need everybody to do their part like that quote that we don't need one perfect activist we need everybody talking about the issue and being involved but I do think it's really interesting like I felt even growing up like when I was a kid I do remember environmentalists being branded as tree huggers and it was those people who would actually risk their lives and like be like I'm not moving if you'd tear this tree down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to see the way that the landscape has changed so much in the way that more people are being branded as an activist, which it's almost like that idea of celebrity and how it's like the, the lines have been blurred into what that even means. Yeah. Well, so I love that you use the word celebrity because this leads to my my other hot take. Mm. that I have about more so the eco-influencing. So sure. I I think that the idea of idolizing people, this is not a new phenomena. Mm-hmm. We've been doing this since the beginning of time. We've always had idols and icons and aspirational figures. Like we literally yeah. have statues of people that were carved out thousands of years ago that we still like look at in museums today, right? We're like yeah. this person. So the concept of idolizing people is nothing new. Um, social media has decentralized that, mm. I think, in a really good way. Um, but on eco-influencers in particular, here's the thing. There isn't there is a nasty tension underlying <laughs> it, but I'm he- but I'm here for it and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. So if somebody came to me and they were like, all these people out here trying to become eco-influencers, my response would be like, yeah, I think that's a good thing. You know, greenwashing is real, but I think that when you mm. zoom when you zoom out 100 feet, our, our social development of language paired with technology, mm-hmm. I think, will promote faster modes of quote-unquote common knowledge. And there will just always be new concepts that people kind of get wrong or brands kind of greenwash a little bit around until... It's such common knowledge that you can't get it wrong. 
Yeah. And when like you it's look so and when mainstream. You, right. Like when it's new and it's hot, there's going to be the opportunity to like co-opt it, distort it, la 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 la. But look at how far we've come, right? Like mm-hmm. people are talking about climate change now. People mm-hmm. are talking about environmental justice. People are talking about activism. And mm-hmm. while people might not be getting it 100% right right now, it's that that is going to correct itself so long as advocates and activists and just everyday people that are really passionate continue to reinforce to the best of our ability mm-hmm. what we believe to be true and correct. So like yeah. companies are going to continue to greenwash Honestly, I think young, passionate influencers are not to like absolve influencers in any way of responsibility because due diligence is important, et cetera, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. But I think that companies and corporations and media like industries are going to continue to use that window of time before it's Mm -hmm. like such concrete common knowledge. They're going to exploit influencers. And I think that that is more important to look at the way that brands are exploiting eco-influencers because these brands could also be turning to eco-influencers and being like, hey, I know you want to do this work. Let me fund what you want to do. But instead, Mm -hmm. there are literally a hundred different ways that a company will pressure you to distort your message. And some of them are really obvious. Some of them are subtle. And then some of them really hit you last minute. Like you're like, oh, damn, it's like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would be my hot take on that. I think it's a good thing. I think it course corrects over time. And Mm -hmm. And it course corrects by us continuing to be an accountable, nurturing, supportive, but still vigilant community of people. So true. Have you, can you share, have you had to deal with any like corporate related oh. influences and like oh, pressure? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I'll, I'll, uh, I think one of my best examples that I could give is somebody will, and I think, I think any eco-influencer you talk to will be like, yup, at least like ones that get brand deals on things. Like Mm -hmm. they'll be like, yup, I've experienced that. You could get interviewed, you could get filmed doing X, Y, Z. You could say you want X, Y, Z implemented, but then when it goes live, which you don't even always get to approve before it goes live, Mm-hmm. it's like chopped up and cut in a way that suddenly this is looking like reality TV. And it's like, wait, what? Wow. You know? So it's yeah. like, it'll get, it'll get cut in a way that's like, wow, I feel like they took that one statement, but that statement alone could mean so many things. And it really mm. required the other things I said, or mm. yeah, yeah, like things like that. And so yeah. I think if you really want to learn about someone's stance, who they are and what they believe in, you should look at their work directly. Mm. And a good then tip. if you feel like the brand, like, hmm, I really didn't like their campaign with this brand. I'm disappointed in that influencer, but I really like what they post. Hmm, then was it the influencer or was it the brand? Mm. And it is on influencers to be really vigilant about that. Like you learn every time to ask better questions, to demand better terms and standards, but it's tough out here. So yeah, I would say if you, if you like an influencer and you want to follow their work, see what they're putting out in an unbranded way. Yeah. Um, And then if, you know, if something seems inconsistent or just like a little mid because it's branded, just know it's because of the brand, not because of because of them totally that's so t so what's on the horizon for you what are you working on speaking of projects and branded and unbranded things what can we look forward to yeah um 
I think something that has, which I said a little bit in the beginning, something that has sat so firmly and very lovingly in my heart these past few years is the social science of culture and how cultures all over the world, you know, like our songs, our food, our dress, our traditions are just organic expressions of our relationship to land. And I think what's next for me is manifesting projects that allow me to dive a little bit deeper into that because I'd love for the environmental space to recognize that and celebrate it rather than just keep talking about inclusivity for the sake of, you know, not leaving people behind. Like, obviously, Mm -hmm. that's important from an ethics standpoint, but it's more than that. We're not just playing nice. We're not just trying to not leave people behind. When we lose culture, we lose ways of looking at the world. Like Mm -hmm. it is so, this is not just about us being ethical and nice. This is about understanding everyone's sacred wisdom that's attached to this planet and how it's so culturally informed. So yeah, I think even as a girl from Houston who didn't grow up camping or hiking, I truly believe that everyone's relationship to land is so sacred. And I want Mm. us to build a world that really reflects that. Mm, that's so cool well thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me this was amazing i could like sit and talk to you for so long no yeah thank you for having me this was this was so great and i'm i'm so glad i got to share a little bit about ie and just why i think culture is the best blueprint for environmentalism 